The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. Um, and we're live. Great. I think. I'm just going to take it as an article of faith that we're live because it says we're live. Let it me, is, I will tweet out the link. Okay. Yep. It is five o'clock. It is Saturday, April 5th. Oh, April 4th. It is Saturday, April 4th. I have a glass of scotch. Kate appears to have, what are you, um, what are you drinking? What is it? It's a harpoon IPA. Aha. Kate has a beer and we don't have fun anymore in Washington or in Cape Cod, but in lieu of fun, there's uh, this uh, at five o'clock every day. So here we are. We don't have a guest today, uh, but we do reserve the right to elevate uh, anybody we see from the audience into the conversation at any time. It's kind of like the rapture we just grab you and lift you up <laughs> into the heavens. Um, and um, and so actually I'm gonna do that right away um, with Vishnu Kanan, who is uh, Lawfare's former intern, uh, student in uh, at Michigan State. And uh, I just saw him here and thought it would be cool to say hi. So how are you doing Vishnu? Doing good, how are you? Good. Where are you? Are you? Uh, uh, are you? I assume you're like studying remotely. Uh, yeah, I'm still on my apartment just off campus. Um, yeah, just like conducting my own mini review of the Afghan war, to like for a paper for class, and that's that's how this is going. And and how how uh, isolated are people in Lansing slash East Lansing, Michigan? pretty isolated. Um, campus is dead, um, deader than summer dead, uh, which is encouraging, I think, as a matter of public health. Um, yeah, everything's kind of slow. It doesn't, I don't think there's a dramatic drop off just because East Lansing is a relatively quiet place anyways, but yeah. It's and what, uh, what are you uh, like, Michigan's definitely one of the states that's got an up-and-coming, very serious problem. Uh, how are how are you seeing that from where you are? Is it is that mostly a Detroit thing, or is it uh, uh, a um, uh, uh, or or are you seeing day-to-day -day evidence of that? Yeah, no, I think it's mostly a Detroit thing as of now, but I. I imagine because we're starting to get people, you know, two hops out, you know, people who are who are affected by this two or three hops out. And so I think as um, as this goes further, uh, it's going to start to affect places like Lansing, too. But right now it's pretty confined. Um, and uh, and in are your... you from Detroit, Michigan, originally or Detroit or Michigan originally? Yeah, I'm from Ann Arbor. So okay. I grew up there and came to school at state. 
What's it well, like actually, to like grow up in Ann Arbor and then go to Michigan State? My sense is that the the betrayal hasn't been as big because my family's not aren't huge football people. Um, but for for some of my friends, I think there's there's persistent tension when you go home. I I just never felt that. Well, well, excellent. Do you have uh, 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 any great words of wisdom uh, um, from before uh, we dismiss you? Uh, no, I've got questions for you all, but I'll ask them. Oh, well, no, no, ask oh, them. Okay, uh, cool. Questions count. Questions count, cool. So this is a, this is a weird scholarship question, um, but you both have studied and written about things that were were pretty niche and you seem to have gotten there well before the general public or even the scholarly community got there. So Ben, I'm thinking about your early stuff on the FISA court. Kate, I'm thinking about, you know, online speech and disinformation, or sorry, not disinformation, but online speech generally um, well before it was in the public consciousness. So one, how did you go about finding niche areas like that or were they kind of accidental? And then two, as a broader thing, in your kind of early in your career, how much control did you try to exercise over the direction of your scholarship um, and did you succeed? Oh, I love this question. Ben, I feel like we've had this conversation Indeed. about each of our paths, right? Yeah, absolutely. So let's, uh, uh, thank you, Vishnu, for that. We're going to uh, put you back in the audience, and then Kate will start, and then I'll give some thoughts on that as well. Good to hear your voice, man. Thanks. Good. Yeah, thank you so much for such a great question. Um, uh, you know, Ben, you and I have talked about this in the context of, um, uh, you know, having credentials or being credentialed and feeling or not, and feeling like an imposter when you follow kind of your gut or what you think is like something that is super interesting. Um, and I think that we have both talked about how we came up against a lot of opposition and had huge, I did anyways, like I had huge moments of doubt. Like I, I talk openly about the fact that like in the course of doing my PhD work at Yale, like even though I was at Yale, I like never felt like I belonged there and I never felt like I was supposed to be there. It was huge imposter syndrome. And I think um, I had this one moment where I had worked on that paper that became the new governors and I had submitted it and gotten failed <laughs> as my seminar paper <laughs> went on to get published in the Harvard Law Review, but it got failed for my seminar paper because the two professors that I were teaching me did not think that it was proper legal scholarship. And I remember just sobbing on the floor of my studio apartment. And like, I had spent nine months of empirical research and writing and rewriting at that point. And my partner was just like, get up. And the only way you can like prove anyone wrong is to just keep working. And if you do a good job according to you and you are, you think this is interesting, like it'll be fine. Like there will just like, you, you know, maybe you won't have like some great, it won't like have some great breakthrough. Like we didn't think that it would ever get published in a place like Harvard, but there is just the idea that like, you can't go so wrong if you work really, really hard and you love what you're doing and you think it's, you know, and I think that that's the only thing, like, I just kind of, I just, I'm fascinated by everything that I do. And when I'm not, I don't do it. Like, 
that is kind of the wonderful thing about academia. I mean, and that's also how I knew that I was going to go into academia. It was like, I would be sitting in a firm and they would make me like research some topic and I would kind of get it up enough to like finish the memo and like, but I didn't really care. And like, I, it just didn't turn my crank. And like the same thing was like, yeah. So, I mean, it's a great question, but I think it's just an evolution of like having confidence in yourself and trusting yourself. And after a while, enough times, if you're lucky, like enough times you take a risk and it pays off. And then, you know, the next time to trust your instincts, but I still struggle with that all the time. Like, I wonder if like, I think I just, there's also a fair amount of like luck, right, Ben? Yeah, there's, a, I mean, and, and your example of the FISA, uh, uh, my FISA work in the 90s is a, is a really great example of, uh, I don't know what percentage of it was insight and what percent was luck, but it was uh, a substantial amount of luck. I, I got interested in the institution of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court at a time when literally nothing had ever been written about it of consequence. And I, it was so understudied that when I asked the people in the Justice Department whether I could go see it, they were like, well, sure. And they actually showed me, I'm, I think I'm the only journalist who's ever like walked inside the FISA court. And it was because it was so understudied. Now, did I have some kind of instinct that, yeah, this thing might turn out to be important? Yes, I did. Um, did I have the same instinct about a lot of things that didn't turn out to be important? Yeah. And so like- Right, I it, know. Like, it's not a perfect I, I, study. <laughs> exactly. It's not like, uh, like I can, like the N is not one here, you know? And it is not like I looked and said, aha, uh, the FISC is going to be the focus of immense public controversy over a long period of time from civil libertarians and from Congress and from defenders of the president and critics. I mean, I like, no, I did not anticipate any of that. What I did anticipate is this is interesting, this is different, this is curious, and it raises some interesting issues and nobody's focused on it. Um, and I, I do think, you know, what the part of it that you get credit for is for having the sort of like curiosity to say, okay, and that's enough rather than to say, yeah, but everybody's over here looking at this. So I've got to be over here looking at this. That is an instinct that I think can really does serve you to sort of look where no one's looking. Um, but like, don't you think too that like, so this is interesting, but there is like a high, you're raising kind of like the idea that there's a hindsight bias. Like it looks like we both got lucky with these things. It doesn't show all of the things that we were like fall, like that we like all of the things that we falsely identified that didn't turn out. But I will say that like, um, there is like, there is like a certain, like how did you have a certain robustness and pushback on looking at the FISA court? Did people tell you it was just going to be stupid and boring? Um, I had like a solid mix of people. I had a, like Jack Balkan and Danielle Citron who believed in me and thought that what I was doing mattered. And that meant a lot. And then there were other people who just thought it was dumb, dumb, dumb and never going to matter. And 
So a lot of people, I like the thing about writing about institutions of the US federal government is that you'll never get somebody who says it's dumb because it's there. I mean, it actually exists and explicating things that exist, you won't get that kind of pushback on. On the other hand, what you will get is, yeah, but why aren't you covering the story of the day, whatever it is? And the story of that day, whatever that day was, is completely forgotten and unimportant today. Um, I mean, like the list of things that I was asked, why aren't you covering is very long and none of them are as important as those things. So look, the other side of the point that Vishnu raises is your point about imposter syndrome. And I have a very complicated relationship with imposter syndrome because on the one hand, I have never had it. And the reason is that I am an actual imposter. And, you know, I write about law for a living. I have no credential to do that. Um, and I interact with distinguished law professors like Kate Klonick on the basis of equality and, and you know, despite being a total fraud. And be, there's nothing like actually getting sick to cure you of, of hypochondria. And there's nothing like actually being an imposter to cure you of imposter syndrome. And there's one really important caveat to this, which is this fall, I taught a class at the Harvard Law School. And I have interacted with Harvard Law professors, you know, most days of my life for the last 20 years. I've never had imposter syndrome. But teaching a class in front of those students, I had imposter syndrome in a big way. And if any of them are watching, uh, consider this my like uh, confession. Yeah, I was totally afraid of them all every day. Um, and so like, there are things that for all of us are, um, you know, complicated given our history that we feel fraudulent about. But the basic answer to me to Vishnu's, for me to Vishnu's question is, um, please uh, never uh, don't explore something that in your soul you think is interesting, because it's not what other people are looking at. It's the thing that other people are looking at, that thing is transient. The thing that you discover that only you're interested in, uh, maybe it's an eccentricity. And I think Kate and I have both had some eccentricities that are like, okay, we're interested in this, nobody else is. Well, can we just have one second about that? Like about the eccentricities? Because I do feel that there's a certain amount of buttoned upness that and performance that does kind of come with like kind of being at the upper echelon like kind of places that like you're kind of all of a sudden um i don't know that you're kind of over the all of a sudden you realize that there is just this um you know like people are not authentic about the fact that like they grew up like, I mean, I have a house, like we talked about, I'm in Cape Cod. I have the, my parents have this house in Cape Cod. Um, but I am not like, I do not come for money. My parents are both like government employees, state government employees. Like they had like very little, we were only able to afford this house because they, we rented it every summer. 
and it paid for like the mortgage. And which meant that every time we came here for my entire childhood, it was doing scut work and like cleaning the house and maintaining it and getting ready for other people to live in, um, which is a very different thing. But you can say things like, I have a house in Cape Cod and people here, like that's a like it's a dog whistle to like people with money or people of privilege. And that like kind of like ingratiates you in, in certain ways. But then it also isolates you because there's like, if you say exactly what I just said, that it's not this huge fancy house or a mansion and we don't have maids that get it ready for us before we show up or whatever, that there's this, um, I don't know that there's just kind of like, I do feel like at a certain point, there is also like this class thing that happens with, um, with like kind of the circles that we, we, we work around is my like total is like, shouldn't not talk about that, but just like, I kind of like think that it's a, um, it's something I've kind of felt for like a lot of, um, a lot of the, uh, I don't know, for a lot of the time that I've kind of like been in, um, this world, uh, just like how I was raised is very different than like a lot of the elite institutions I was lucky enough to be a part of. Yeah. So I, you know, in some way, in important ways, that is not a feature of my, uh, like I, I come from, you know, a, my, my parents are both my biomedical research people. I come from a background that would be uh, very comfortably part of the, uh, the sort of elite, you know, worlds that, that you're responding to. On the other hand, what's different about me is that actually I, I stopped and I never went to, to graduate school and I just kind of worked as a journalist as a, as a young adult. And that was different from, is very different from the circles that it's actually similar to your background, except that you then turned around and went to graduate school, but I never did. And so I ended up working in, you know, kind of, finding my way to this the conversation that all of these people are are part of through a very different route and one that is in some ways still not entirely reputable and so there are a lot of people who you know instinctively kind of dismiss the sort of work that I do uh, in in a way that has class elements although, we are very much in in a formal sense part of the same class if if that makes sense without going too far adrift and i do want to like bring michael up for a second i just i also think that this is fascinating because i do think that like in the us this is a pretty unique function of like basically being able to um being able to just go to a school, no matter what your background or how you talk or what your accent is really more or less, if you can perform and do something like, I'm not talking just pure meritocracy. Like if you can basically like show people that you're creative and have good ideas, um, that like you can transcend this and, um, but that nonetheless, you are always going to like, there are both people, there are people that come from all of that background from the background of like, eight generations of Harvard that feel like they don't deserve to be at Harvard and people who come from like the projects and don't feel like they, like they get to be at Harvard. Like it cuts both ways. Um, anyways, I kind of wanted to talk to Michael. He actually DM'd me um, about um, a second ago. I'm going to read out his DM and then I'm going to add, like, it'd be great if he could talk about it. Um, so Michael is an old um, coworker of my partner um, and a 
programmer. Um, I think, Michael, I can't remember. You're gonna have to correct us if I'm wrong, but you're, you're at Google still, you're living in Seattle and, um, you are an avid knitter and a, uh, and an all around lovely person and a board game enthusiast. Um, and you wrote to me, you've been watching the show since it started, which is super great. Um, and, you wrote that the difference between feeling like an imposter and being an imposter is that the real ones don't succeed. That doesn't invalidate the feeling, but a good Bayesian having experienced enough counterexamples ought to be willing to update those priors, even if the hind brain disagrees. I kind of want to like talk to you more about what you mean by that. Um, uh, are you, are you there? I am. Hey. Can you hear me? All right. Yeah. It's so nice to hear your voice. Yeah. It has been a long time since we've actually talked in person. I think the um, last time that we hung out, Michael, uh, I might have, I remember this so vividly. I might've cooked, um, chili for everyone that was so hot that literally no one besides me could possibly eat it. And while well, we were all <laughs> living in Boston, like many moons ago, like 10 years ago, maybe yeah, it would have been 2008 or 2009 as that's when, uh, John and I worked together. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I definitely, the, the moment that I actually remember was that uh, our internet went out and a whole bunch of us went to the office to uh, play video games. And, and apparently you all had had sort of the same idea. So we ended up having kind of an impromptu office party. Oh yeah, I remember that. <laughs> Over the bagel shop. Yep. Um, oh man. Yeah. In Porter Square. Right. right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It was. Hey, right, uh, right? Just, just a quick interjection here. Um, to all the Zoom bombers, uh, and there have been 400 Zoom bombers who have posted questions, can you be a little more creative, please? Because I'm, <laughs> I'm getting sick of the repetitive shit. So if you want to Zoom bomb us and you write something interesting and offensive, maybe Kate or I will read it because it'll get a chuckle. But if you're, you know, if you're just going to do the like the, the racial epithets or telling one of us that we're fat or making sexual comments, you know, yeah, well, sorry, it's, it's, it's not going to happen. So my challenge is say something funny enough that I actually laugh. See, like, like writing to me that I should shut up um, and that I'm a, a, you know, I'm that's not doing it. Say something funny or amusing enough that we actually feel compelled to read it. And then you're then you're the man. Well, see, Ben, I think the problem here is that that the whole point of things like Zoom bombing and most other trolling is that it doesn't require any effort. And what you're asking for intrinsically requires effort, requires thought and creative energy that sort of obviates the whole point of yeah, being what a disastrous is it? it feels troll. like some power move. Like I was actually thinking about it. It feels like graffiti is like it's, actually yeah, what but, it most feels but like. But like what I mean, do for people get plays... out of somebody, at, what, what does somebody get out of posting 400 like posts n-word the n-word 400,000 times bitch or cow or you know you're fat or you know like like what are they getting out of this i yeah. think that in many ways just cross the 400 oh it's that hippo, they can that's good and in a lot of ways, it's the human version of a denial of service attack right it's not that that you actually good comparison. care it's not that you actually care whether or not that your message gets heard. You're basically saying, I can prevent you from having a pleasant conversation, even though I'm not even taking part in it. And but I don't know can't. what motivates well, people. 
it's like to, to not do that, like actually but... having much impact on the conversation. It's just requiring me to click dismiss a fair bit while we have it. Yeah, but I mean, it, it forces us to essentially contend with it. And you have both had to comment on this fairly extensively in the previous episodes. Even though it isn't actually part of the conversation, it is in, I think, many ways like the kind of activity that popular political figures engage in. It doesn't matter that it's negative, that it's inflammatory. It forces everybody to pay attention to it rather than to important things that actually need to be addressed. And Good point. Okay, I so feel like for, that's, I feel like that's actually, I think, the point that they're trying to make. So good point. So let's uh, let's declare a new law of of in lieu of fun. If Kate is amenable to this, I propose a new law that not only is the uh, chat closed so that it can't be zoom bombed, but that under no circumstances will we ever again make reference to zoom bombing. Uh, and so. Because it we gives just, it power. Because it gives it power. If, if we're forced to have a conversation about it, that is not as bad as as us, uh, like giving voice to it. But Michael is exactly right. It's a form of power. So let's just say the chat will be closed, and anybody who uh, who zoom bombs us will be shouting into the ether because we'll never make reference to it again. But can we get back to Michael's really great question, which was just kind of like, well, Michael, you kind of reframe it. I would love it if you could kind of explain a little bit more. Like, I think that you are saying that like an imposter should know in some objective way that they've, like a person who has imposter syndrome should know in some objective way that they've like answered the, like that they've achieved some objective level of success. And so therefore the imposter syndrome should fall away. But I think that that's um, an inherent misunderstanding of, the syndrome. So I, I agree with you. And I, I, I think I perhaps have not conveyed what I was trying to convey clearly. I don't actually think that it should just magically disappear. I acknowledge that imposter syndrome is fundamentally an emotional relationship with your experience, not a, a factual one. But what I guess I'm saying is that, you know, one of the things that I, I have had to contend with, as I also very much experience that feeling is that sometimes you, you succeed at the things that you believe you're an imposter at and you keep succeeding at them. And I have tried to use this as a mechanism to sort of keep under control the, the negative emotions that this pro provokes. Um, I, this, this came up and I made my comment to you initially because I, I was thinking about sort of the, the fact that, you know, you and I both went to graduate school and I think, judging from what you've said, we both had very similar feelings about our relationship to that graduate school. I did not ever feel that I belonged there. Were you in um, comp, were you, well, it's tell people where you're graduate school. Were you doing comp sci or physics? Computer science. I, I am not a physicist in any, in any meaningful wise. Um, and so, you know, I think that the, the, the real difference that, that I, that I noticed really is that I did not finish grad school. I washed out of it. Um, and to some extent, it only ever really requires doing the work, but that's never easy for anyone. So I think that sort of there's two pieces, I guess, that I'm trying to get at here. One is that I think we have to acknowledge that imposter syndrome is fundamentally not a, an, an accurate reflection either way of our actual competency, and that we should try as to the extent possible to assuage our, our emotional state using the factual results that we have obtained, like 
completing our degrees and publishing useful things or whatever it is that are, is the metric in our area. And the other is that I think, you know, I think that we have a cult in this, at least in, the, in American society, of kind of the creative genius. And we tend to think of someone who's really good at something as being someone who's natively really good at something. They sort of pop out being good at it. And those of us who have to work really hard to get good at what we do, which I think she think is most people, but I think a lot of, we, I think we imagine that everybody else is just sort of naturally good at the things that they do. Uh, I think that leads us also to this idea that if we had to work hard at it, we don't really belong. And I think that that actually is not, whether or not that helps us feel better about it, I think that that's actually not accurate. And so I want to try and sort of pull those two pieces apart. Um, and that was sort of the intent I was trying to get at with my comment, not really to invalidate the feeling, because as you say, it, you feel the way that you feel irrespective of whether it makes sense. Yeah, I think I understand what you're saying. I, I, very, I do understand what you're saying. I would, I guess what I would say is that the idea of imposter syndrome and the kind of the notion that you put forth of like, whether like you succeed or you don't succeed, here's the one thing as a reason, as a rational, reasonable person that makes me feel afraid and validates my imposter syndrome. It is when I look at other people that are in my same position and I don't think their work is very good, or I think that they're frauds. <laughs> and so I am like, Oh God, uh, you have the same title as me and you've published in really good places. And this is a bad paper that does like mm -hmm. says nothing and does nothing. And like is poorly written and doesn't cite to the right type of like to the right literature. And then I'm kind of like, okay, well, if that person is at X school and publishing in X places, then what does any of this even mean? And what does it mean to be an imposter or not an imposter? And then it's all just about kind of some type of performance of self, right? Of like, just kind of like, it's whatever you make it to be, not to get all philosophical about it, but I just no, got philosophical I, I think you're it. absolutely right. I think also that, you know, the point that you're touching on there, I think is actually perhaps even a third aspect of this, which is that society is poor at rewarding actual accomplishments. And we have a lot of mechanisms in place that are not really accurate measures, but proxies. So for example, if someone successfully gets their paper, even bad one, published in a prestigious journal, then they are seen as being, you know, an accomplished researcher or academic or whatever it is that they're, that they're doing. And in reality, that may or may not actually be the case, right? You know, someone who can objectively look at this paper and say, and say this hypothetical paper that we're talking about here and say, it's bad. And then it does make you wonder, right? How, how is it that we fail upwards so frequently and those people who you know, sometimes work very, very hard don't necessarily even have the success we feel they ought to? And I think that's actually a separate problem. It, it is lead, a separate problem. Ben, I don't want to hear It may lead to, to someone that. feeling like an imposter, but I think it doesn't really bear on their actual accomplishments. It's a measure in some sense of, of where they fit into a larger social structure. Yeah. yeah, like Ben, what does it mean that people who actually are shitty end up becoming famous or getting a lot of credit for having being amazing when they're not? So, look, there's something always infuriating about the march and triumph of mediocrity. <laughs> and nowhere is that more infuriating 
than in uh, those areas where, um, you know, we're thinking about where excellence is, is at some level subjective, right? So mediocrity will never triumph in say marathon running because actually the best marathon runners run faster than the mediocre marathon runners, right? Where there, are, where there really are objective measures, mediocrity, I mean, it has its ways, right? Like performance enhancing drugs and, the, and whatnot, but there really is, you know, in areas that are uh, purely measurable, um, it really does have, uh, there are limits. Now, the thing about intellectual areas is that these are always ultimately subjective. And that means that there are these people who do inexplicably well relative to how you think they should. And those people tend to have a few things in common. One is that they tend to uh, come from backgrounds where they expect a certain measure of success and they feel entitled to it. They are disproportionately male um, and they are also, and this is I think important, uh, they are uh, disproportionately charismatic. And um, I like do not underestimate the role of charisma in elevating mediocre people to greatness that they were not, that their merits do not entitle you to. And so you do have a bunch of people who are sort of temperamentally a little bit diffident, a little bit less willing to speak up, uh, a little bit less willing to put themselves forward who will disproportionately tend to be female and who may come from backgrounds where they just don't expect that, they don't assume or feel entitled to a certain level of, of success. Those are gonna be the people who are uh, uh, victims of this and who will tend, by the way, to um, uh, also feel like imposters when they, nonetheless find themselves succeeding because they are in fact dripping with talent and really interesting. Um, and I don't know what to say about that, except that it's on all of us who, you know, cultivate talent for a living, which, you know, is a large part of what I try to do, uh, that you have to be really aware of these things because the person sitting in front of you may not be the person who will, you know, raise her hand when you ask for a volunteer to do some spectacular project, but may be exactly the person you want to do that project. And, you know, I, I don't really like, I, I vacillate between a sense of it as a societal problem that we all just need to be sensitive to and a, a sense of, uh, a lot of people needing a lot of tough love about like, you have to stop acting like you're not worth it. Um, and I think both of those honestly have a place. And when I'm talking to a person who behaves this way, like if I were talking to Kate a few years ago, uh, I would be in tough love mode, 
uh, if I heard her saying like the things that she describes herself feeling then, I didn't know her then. Um, but when I mean, I'm you were really kind of tough love mode, like the first thing that you said, one of the first things you said to me was like, you think you have imposter syndrome and you don't. <laughs> that was one of the first, like, you think you're an imposter and you're not an imposter. That was one of the first things you said to me. It was great. Yeah, so like, 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 I do think there's an element of it that's, you know, pick yourself fucking off the floor and understand that you're actually great. And there's like a group of people who really need to be told that uh, in an aggressive way, in a sort of confrontational way. But then there's the message to the broader world, which is stop assuming that greatness looks like what you expect it to look like. And, and you know, sometimes it is the person who is least likely to raise hands, who is the person where the still waters run deep and you, it is on you to notice that and to to be the tough love for that person. Uh, and so I have very complicated feelings about it. And I, 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 you know, I honestly don't know uh, what the optimal mix is. And I, I think it's often highly individualistic. So that's a kind of Rorschach test answer, I guess. Um, Michael, thank you so much. Uh, this was, yeah. this was fabulous. Bye, Michael. Uh, we miss have, you. We have a bunch of other questions, uh, including I'm going to bring on Maggie Feldman Pilch, who a lot of you will know to ask our, the weekly food question. Uh, Maggie. Hi, friends. How are hey. you? How, I, you know, camera I'm, so we can see you. Wait, how do I? I don't think that this that? is the thing. I don't think that they can. Ha I don't think they that. Yeah. Cameras anymore. Oh, by the way, I, I'm going to violate the rule that I just said uh, set about the uh, uh, um, about the uh, Zoom bombers to the person who sent 200 times the question. Can I have some pussy, please? Um, huh. uh, uh, Please learn how to spell the word please before you ask <laughs> 200 times for pussy. I mean, like, like you're not even going to get an answer if you can't spell please properly. Uh, it was missing times. an E at the end. Yeah. It was missing an E at the end. That's true. Another E. 200 <laughs> times. Okay, Maggie, what's your question? Okay, so I am somebody who um, has a very, like, average diet for myself in the sense that, like, I eat pretty much the same thing at the same time every day. Um, but when you're stuck in your house the whole time, you're like, Hmm, maybe I should try other things. And so I'm thinking about trying other things. I'm not saying I've done it yet. And I'm wondering, are you guys eating like extra boring or extra fancy or like, what is like the coolest, fanciest thing you've had so far? I will say that today I had black truffle infused cheese and it was fucking delicious. Where the fuck are you getting that? The remnants basket at Whole Foods, which if you are not spending time in the remnants basket, I'm in like Whole Foods, rural. I'm in like a. I'm like. Wegmans I has even... it too. All right, this is a great question. I know this is hey, super fun. What are you eating these days? Oh God, it really depends. Um, but it's. Uh, I will say that there's. Like, I used to be. I grew up as a person who cooked all the time. My mom made 
and my dad cooked every night and I had all of, I was a bring my lunch to school every day kid. Um, and since living in New York for the past, like 15 years, basically I do take out almost every night, every night. And like occasionally we'll cook. I love cooking. I'm very good at it. Um, and now I cook every night and it's amazing how much time I have to now dedicate to cooking like, and thinking about and meal planning and like how much time that takes that I have forgotten how much time it takes. Does that make sense? Um, we are eating normal stuff. Like I'm like bean, I had like, I made it like an white bean and herb sausage, like deliciousness. The other day we've like made at home our own like spaghetti sauce, um, and pasta. I haven't been eating. We actually, this is funny, Maggie. We actually ordered Soylent because we like, we are used to just having a quick meal in the mornings and like doing something like that. We were having smoothies more often. I made stuffed peppers the other day. I don't know. Uh, but then like, I have these moments where I'm just starving and I eat junk food. And now I understand I never used to have junk food around, uh, at all. Like, did I don't like, I just like, wouldn't. And now I'm like, okay, now I want some potato chips and cream cheese. And that's like a thing that I have. It's like the Cape Cod dark russet potato chips and like Philadelphia cream cheese. It's like my thing. Um, I don't have a sweet tooth very much anyway. Yeah, no, that's kind of it. Yeah. So I have a similar thing. I have been, uh, for the last few years feeling guilty about the amount of number of times we order out rather than cooking uh, or we go out. And now I feel guilty about the amount we're cooking rather than ordering out because all of our, our local restaurants, including some that we really have relationships with the owners of uh, are in full takeout mode. And, you know, I feel a real obligation to, try to keep them in business and try to help them survive this. And so on the other, on, on the one hand, I feel like, hey, you know, finally we're cooking at home a lot. And on the other hand, every day we cook at home, I think, huh, shouldn't we order out tonight um, in a kind of, in a kind of public service sort of way. And I, I, I feel kind of ridiculous about the, uh, the inversion of my normal guilt virtue feelings, but uh, I have been cooking a lot. How much, how much has my diet changed as a result? It's definitely gotten better um, eating less, uh, less uh, thinking more about what I'm going to eat or eating more in mealtime and less snacking constantly. Uh, have I been trying a lot of new things? No, although a, you know, it's funny you mentioned truffles because a rather large amount of truffles and truffle oil showed up at my house uh, not too long ago. So I've been Lucky thinking you. about things to do with truffles, uh, as Maggie knows, because she, because I texted her the other day, what, what should I do with uh, some black truffles? So uh, that's, uh, uh, that's, that's what I can tell you about my diet. Is now can we can we mention exercise? I can show my my video. Oh yeah, show your video because Kate had like a total badass. Like I have a whole thing that's happening in my in my life uh, that is um, that is um, kind of like we have we 
are in Cape Cod. It's been raining for five days. We haven't been able to go outside. We're building a garden. We're used to going and having like going to like the gym and whatever. And so we've been doing a lot of kind of outdoor work as uh, a means of exercise. Um, and anyways, my partner decided to chop up this tree stump uh, today. And so I decided that I would help. He'd been at this for like a great deal of time before, um, before I, I got there, but this is the, this is the video. Um, I will play this briefly. That was pretty much but, it. But that is <laughs> super excellent that you gave, gave out a bellowing roar when you did it. We're just having fun. We're just trying to like survive. <laughs> um, it's the um, little um, things. Yeah, it's no, nice to I've be been, outside today. I've been uh, spending some time indoors today uh, with my son 3D printing masks. That's been, uh, it does not give rise to bellowing roars, however. Andrew Green, Hi. you have a question. Yeah, you know, I was, I was, uh, and I'm sorry to change the topic to something legal related because, uh, you know, I love hearing about people's dining experiences during this situation. And I've, I've been eating great, so, because uh, I love to cook. But uh, I was kind of curious about the kind of constitutional implications of, the enforcement of some of these stay home orders. Um, and of course, you know, the, the social distancing and the stay home is really critically important. But I'm kind of curious to understand what we think the police can really do legally to enforce these sort of things. And where what are the, what limits are there, if any, uh, in, in this circumstance? And possibly on a longer term question, what could we do sort of long term planning wise to make sure that we have the sort of legal infrastructure in place to make sure that we can sort of lock down society, but kind of do so within the bounds of the Constitution and our rights? Great a question. Um, so I actually, it's funny that you ask it because a number of years ago, uh, 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 then law student uh, named Adam Klein, who is now the, uh, has ceased to be a law student and is now the chair of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. Um, and I wrote a paper about various uh, authorities to engage in preventive detention. And the paper contains a substantial section on the powers of isolation and quarantine, um, which were quite obscure at the time, but are actually very substantial. And the basic answer to your question is that these uh, cases, which uh, grew up mostly in the context of typhoid and uh, cholera and uh, uh, other um, you know, communicable diseases of the sort of late 19th and early 20th centuries, are uh, they give the government, state governments mostly, very broad powers to uh, detain people who are communicable and not whose whose 
isolation and to isolate them while they pose a public health threat. Do you um, think and- that that's, do you think that that's different? Sorry, not to interrupt, but do you think that it matters that there's public health related reasons for the plagues versus like Korematsu and like kind of other types of national security um, emergency powers? Like, is it emergency powers writ large or do you think that there are greater ones when there's like some type of biohazard? No, so I, I, I think the, the larger thesis of Adam in my paper is that there's actually much more preventive detention authority in US law and practice than people acknowledge. And that we actually have a fair number of areas where we allow preventive detention. We just generally don't call it that. And so this is a good example. We don't call it preventive detention. We call it isolation and quarantine. Um, I do think these powers are less controversial than some other preventive detention authorities and coercive police power authorities, partly because the nature of the threat is not disputed. So to use your example of Korematsu, um, there, there was, you know, the nature of the threat was really bound up in xenophobic racism um, and the, the, the actual threat was, you know, uh, very debatable or even de minimis. Um, and so in retrospect, and for many people, including some justices of the Supreme Court, at the time that power uh, looked to be, and in fact, I think was, uh, an expression of invidious discrimination rather than a, uh, a, a legitimate preventive action for the safety and security of, of people. Conversely, the, uh, you know, the detention of Typhoid Mary, whose uh, name has come down through the, I mean, she was a genuine menace to society. And, you know, she got a lot of people sick and got a lot of people killed. And uh, her detention was not, a, you know, the idea that there is some authority to detain people who, are not isolating and, you know, in circumstances where they carry a deadly communicable disease, uh, that is not one that has been especially controversial, though it has given rise to lots of litigation. The novelty of the current situation is that instead of detaining individuals who are isolating, they're basically trying to isolate everybody by locking down society. Uh, So far, this has not been uh, litigated, I think, because most people just kind of accept. None of this stuff that- is litigated at the time because of the, the incredible amount of deference that the government is given in, in these emergency powers, right? It's true, although the, the detentions and isolations of individuals often get litigated, and that's why we have case law. And the case law is pretty permissive because the threat is very real, and it's not it's not obvious if the government say, we're gonna just say, okay, well, we don't wanna trample on anybody's civil liberties. So we're gonna just kind of let the virus spread. We're gonna ask very nicely that people stay home. Uh, It's not obvious that the consequences of that would not be a lot of deaths. And so the, the case law is permissive here for a reason and the general rule to to go back to your original question, is that detention or, you know, coercive measures are acceptable provided that the 
the predicate is, is uh, real and the measure in question is, you know, there's a test that's roughly the least restrictive mean, it correlates roughly with the least respect, restrictive means. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's probably the worst idea in the world, except for all the others. I've never, I've never heard an alternative to it that does not involve the possibility of significant additional communicative uh, illness. And so, I, look, I, I think it's a really interesting problem. It's one that you know we're going to live with, frankly, until we have a vaccine. Um, and uh, you know, the question we have to ask ourselves is whether we prefer a regime like this to the way we dealt with this in the past, which was simply to allow large numbers of people to die. Yeah. So on that uplifting note, Ben, <laughs> you wrote, and I'm going to tweet it out in a second, but you wrote an incredible piece uh, that was really great. It really was fantastic. Uh, you wrote an incredible piece um, uh, for um, uh, Passover um, that is about all of the plagues and trying to find an upside in every plague. Is that a, I couldn't like a, find I couldn't find a good upside to lice. Okay, you want to know? Here's a good here's a good upside. You want to know how I contracted lice when I was a child for the first time? Mm -hmm. I was in the Chuck E. Cheese ball pit in like Henrietta, New York, and I was like, my mom, like I got out, and my mom was like, "That's gross," and I feel like <laughs> <laughs> like like maybe that's a giant contagion zone. And then sure enough, like I got lice. Like, anyways. And there was no upside after that, but the ball pit was an upside. Is what yeah, I'm so like that's like saying there's a there's an upside to sexually transmitted diseases, which is the sex. Um, like I, you know, I think that's. Um, oh God, I didn't even think about that. That's a good point. Yeah, right. No. Like I, I think it's like it's it's telling the story from too early a point. You know, like. Um, okay, but walk us through your piece because I think that it is so excellent. Um, I'm going to pull it up so that it, we can, um, well, uh, talk I don't about have, it. but tell us basically about researching it. Cause I think it's super fun. Okay. So, you know, uh, Batya, uh, Ungar Sargon from the forward, uh, which is a, a, a Jewish newspaper in New York wrote me and asked me, would I write some reflections on the 10 on plagues and for the, the Passover edition. And I was feeling impish. And so I, thought, you know, I'm lying outside in my hand. Yeah, can I actually just read the, the lead? It's so sure. good. As I write these words, I am lying on a hammock next to a fire burning an outdoor fireplace on my porch. A glass of single malt scotch is in my hand. The Mozart second horn concerto is playing in the background. As plagues that shut society down go, this one certainly has its upsides. And I think yeah. that I love that. I think that this is like, this is kind of like, this is, it captures the privilege and also the sad reality and loneliness uh, of this plague in a sense um, that is like, un, is like very difficult to talk about. Right. So I'm sitting there and like, we're all like, you know, upset about the fate of the world and the economy is crashing and, and, you know, large numbers of people are dying 
but like, what does it actually mean for me? It's like, I'm in a state of relaxation at home with my family in not luxurious conditions, but very pleasant conditions, doing whatever the heck I want to do. And this is a, a state that for billions of people all through history would have been regarded as the ultimate leisure. Um, and, and I was just very struck by the irony of that. And then, you know, I, what's more, for the first time in months, I'm caught up on my email. Right. Which that is, is like I really hate you for that, by the way, because I am the opposite of caught up on my email. I, you must, know, you had a paper to finish. It's not um, just the paper. I must get like all of my students are freaking the f out. Like they're all like I mean like, oh my god! It's like I can't make class. I can make class. Like my like, and then also really real things. Hey, Professor Klonick, can you get us me a landlord tenant lawyer in New York because I'm being <laughs> evicted from my apartment? Like. I mean, it's just really terrifying. And my parents are sick. I'm going to be out of class for this. It's just like the whole thing is like, a, sorry, my like my inbox is like a nightmare and I'm barely getting through it. Yeah. So then I thought, well, okay. Like the, the 10 plagues, maybe they had upsides too. And so I started thinking, all right, well, what would be the upside of the 10 plagues? So you come to the first plague and it's that the Nile turns into blood. And just as I'm thinking about this, my Twitter feed has a notice from the Red Cross that we have a critical blood shortage. That's in the actually United super States. clever of you. I and, hope it's O negative blood. Well, you know, <laughs> we don't know what blood type the Nile was. But I would say a, a river full of any kind of blood right now would probably be helpful. And no, uh, if it was actually intermingled, it would be the opposite of helpful. <laughs> it would just be a giant sludge of blood. <laughs> like, okay, but like it doesn't say that it wasn't O negative blood. Okay. And like I just think we should take like so then like second plague is frogs, an abundance of frogs. Now, I have been worried for years now about all these stories I read about how the amphibians around the world are dying off. It's super scary. There is not an abundance of frogs right now. And so like the Bible goes like a little too far with it. They're gonna be in your bedroom and under your sheets and in your bread kneading. And all right, I don't need that. But like that the Potomac should bring forth frogs in abundance that sounds great they're super um, cute they're really cute and they make nice noises and they're going extinct and so then i was thinking like okay Get rid how, of bugs how, yeah how far can we go with this which other plagues have bright sides so what i tried to do was it's like it's, a wonderful conceit it's just really fun so i tried to come up with a bright side of all plagues i didn't manage it for lice if anybody has a bright side of lice or uh, locust infestations, which by the way, are happening right now in Yemen and-, and I would actually say locust infestations really, really hard to like find a bright side to those. Yeah, so they, there like, were like- everything. A few, a few of them I couldn't manage it, but I even came up with a bright side for the killing of the firstborn. And I even came up with a bright side of boils, which having had boils, 
um, which are incredibly painful and miserable. Can I, I have to say, I was question? really proud of that. Yeah. So when I was growing up, I read a lot of Roald Dahl, um, like Fantastic Mr. Fox and BFG and Matilda and the twits and all of them. And they always describe people as having these boils, like boils on their face or boils, like, and like on the tip of their nose. And I do not understand and have never understood whether boil is just another word for like a zit Mm-mm. or whether it is something entirely different. And I just like could never, I had no conception when they used this term, except that it was obviously in context, like not a great thing. Yeah. I never really understood a- that like what it exactly was. So a boil is caused by the staph bacteria. Oh, so it's and- like an actual, it's an like it's almost like a cyst or like an abscess. It is a large, extremely painful cyst. Oh that generally erupts under your, in your armpit, um, or uh, they, they show up in like uncomfortably inconvenient. Well, places. it sounds like they show up around lymph nodes. Yeah, and they, they hurt a lot. I mean, it's like, it's, an, it's no joke pain and they can be kind of hard to get rid of because staph is sometimes antibiotic resistant um, and so uh, some people are susceptible to them. I have had, I've had boils once and I would made me pity Pharaoh. Let's put it that way. It was really <laughs> like really unpleasant. Um, but there's a bright side. The bright side is antibiotics. We didn't, you know, when, when Pharaoh. This got is no boils, longer a plague that can like plague us. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, there's antibiotic-resistant staff and everything, but for most cases of boils, you pop 10 days of, you know, your Zithro pack and it disappears. And I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I think that that's a great place to end for today. Like, I kind of like, you know what? The plus side of the, uh, of the, of today's plague was that I got outside and we got the stump out of the ground. And you and got to roar. I roared. I don't know. It was like that I got to like reconnect with an old friend that I haven't seen in 10 years. Like we got some great questions from the audience. It I think that I think I've mentioned a few times that the last couple of weeks I've been so busy and kind of flat out answering questions, like deal putting out fires like so quickly that I have have not even really looked at I haven't spent a ton of time obsessing over the news or how all this is going I do the show with you I don't spend a ton of time looking at uh looking at stuff and in the last couple of days things have finally started to slow down and I've started to look at stuff and like last night I couldn't sleep for the first time it was like the whole panic of like social order collapsing around us or like you know, kind of hit me. And then I was like, but until then, until then I have been. And that's why I texted you that I said that we were like, that we had like, that we were kind of like the USO, that we were more like the USO <laughs> uh, and Wikipedia than we were like an M plus improv. But like, I liked the USO, like we are like, we, there's like, I think that there's a part of like, it. Keep, this keeps up my morale personally, that it keeps up other people's morale is great. I, I hope so. But I think that there is, I think that there's something there's, it's really hard to figure out what to do for others or for yourself right now. 
Indeed. Before we go, we have uh, eight questions pending oh, in the queue from real people. So I think we should do like a lightning round where we just read the questions and give quick answers. Okay, go ahead. Does that you work do the for first you? One. All right. The first one, yeah, from Christopher Hanelli is, what do you think a guy like James Comey is thinking now, considering all the dumpster fire this administration has caused? I read his book and I liked it. So I'm a little bit encumbered in addressing that because Jim and I are good friends and we talk all the time and I, I, I sort of know the answer to that question. And I also don't want to speak for him. He has uh, talked about that a lot and uh, how he regards this administration and his own role in uh, various aspects of it, including uh, in, his, in the book that the question refers to. And I don't feel comfortable going beyond on his behalf what he's said, uh, except to say that like the answer to that question is very much in the public record. And I'm sorry to be coy about it, but just out of respect for the confidentiality of our relationship, I, I don't think I should address it directly. Um, so I'll take Vishnu's comment next, which I think is really good, which is Kate and Michael, did you feel the same way? And I think he's referring to saying like about our imposter syndrome during undergrad. My sense was that graduate school would feel like more of an equalizer than undergrad. Meaning if you got accepted, you were more likely to feel deserving of being there. I actually think that like, and I think most people would say this, and I think that imposter syndrome is predominantly like addressed as like a thing among graduate students because they feel like all of a sudden they're they're in this this liminal stage between being students still and trying to pretend to become or to em to emulate like the becoming of the people that they're like being taught by and so uh the that I would say it's the opposite that like, basically like you feel like you've faked everything you've done in undergrad, none of it mattered and you get accepted to this program and you're like, okay, I just, now I have to prove myself and like prove myself to these people who really will know if I'm faking it. And that's kind of, I think, um, I think that that's kind of how that question works out. All right. A comment from Leland, a uh, faithful uh, viewer Leland, I come from academics. My father was a computer science professor. My brother is a physics professor. I never graduated. Once one of the influences that caused me to leave school was a wealthy and scientifically successful individual who essentially told me not to pursue school, but to learn practically. It was helpful, but I think more than anything else, being under active mentorship by someone always changes things. Graduate school is another form of active mentorship by someone who is successful in the field, hopefully. Kate, do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you, well, you had my active mentor on before, or two of them this week, Danielle and Jack, and like it made all the difference. If like they hadn't been there, I would have given up. So I think that that's a complete, that's completely true. Josh Jacobson writes, I started reading Lawfare a couple of years ago and it has gotten me much more interested in a career in public service slash government. How does one make a mid-career change from working in tech to being a public servant? So first of all, Josh, I just wanna say, I, I uh, of all the comments that I have gotten recently about Lawfare and its role in people's lives, that is a, one of my absolute favorites because 
you know, it is centrally about, lawfare is centrally about helping people in public service do their jobs better. And it kind of, it's just like really great to hear that it is actually also inspiring people to imagine careers in public service. So the answer to your question, uh, I can't be very specific about because there's no, as with all mid-career changes, uh, the answers are always highly um, uh, individualized to the person and the specific backgrounds that they have and also what they want. I will say that you know, the government needs uh, people who have significant tech experience in, uh, in that expertise, uh, they need it badly. Uh, they, uh, across a wide range of areas, the intelligence community needs people, the uh, law enforcement world needs people, all kinds of uh, 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 components of the government outside the national security space as well uh, need people with tech backgrounds. And so uh, without knowing more about the background uh, and the kind of things you're interested in, I can't be very specific except to say that people like you are highly sought after as a general matter. Yeah. Um, um, Robin wants to know, uh, aside from hosting a great podcast, I, that means you, Ben, um, what podcast do you listen to for fun? Okay, so I there are two podcasts that I listen to, three that I listen to almost every day. Uh, one is the, uh, the Daily from the New York Times. Uh, the second is Mike Pesca's podcast, The Gist. Uh, I think Mike Pesca is uh, one of the best talkers and I've ever heard on any subject. I, I think he's super smart. He's a great interviewer, and I just love hearing him talk. And the third is uh, Charlie Sykes's podcast, The Bulwark uh, Podcast, which is uh, a publication Kind of that uh, uh, the bulwark is a publication around which the never Trump conservative movement has kind of crystallized. And I think Charlie, who's an old time uh, conservative radio talk show host, has just done a, a fabulous job making the transition to this moment and has constantly interesting people with very diverse ideological conversations on it. And I just think they've, they've done a fabulous job being interesting every day. So those are kind of my daily podcasts. Um, I, my more, more generally, the Talking Politics podcast, which is out of Cambridge University and the London Review of Books is completely spectacular. And Helen Thompson and, and David Runciman deserve an immense amount of credit for it. There's a lot of other stuff I listen to too, but those are you know, for regular listening day in, day out on our current situation, both domestically and internationally. I think those are really just fabulous pieces of work. Um, I don't know if I understand the next question, but- I don't either, so let's skip it. Okay, and then um, let's skip the next one because that's personal to me. I have no idea who that person is, so. Um, okay, um <laughs> we are going to ignore the other questions and that wraps us for today. Yeah. Awesome. Tomorrow we're back on with mystery guests, which are just random people that we've pulled, pulled from the audience. Oh my gosh. What a thoughtful end to our zoom bombing experience. <laughs> um, there's, um, 
I think that, so we're wrapped tomorrow. We're going to do mystery guests. Do not know who's going to come on. I think we're just going to do one mystery guest each is what we decided, Ben. Yeah, unless one of them wants to invite somebody, in which case we're certainly not. We'll give them the option of doing that. Then they can or they cannot. Um, In the meantime, my I know one asked me, but if you want to know some good TV shows to watch, I would highly recommend Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Cheers. Um, (laughs) What men? (laughs) No, I just I only just noticed that the cast you were with is a oh, different cast than the cast you were with. <laughs> it's like, I'm, this is, I mean, like, I feel like everybody knows your name at, in lieu of show, unless you're an anonymous Zoom bomber, in which case <laughs> your name is Mike Hunt and we know who you are also. <laughs> All right. Until tomorrow, we don't have fun soon, anymore. Ben. But we, uh, in lieu of fun, we'll be back tomorrow at five. Thank you to everybody whose questions we uh, addressed and to the Zoom bombers, uh, all, uh, how many of them were there today? I think we have going on 650 Zoom bombs, even though we shut down chat and they're just in the Q&A. Yeah, and so thank you to everybody who sent us the N word over and over again. And thank you to the people who asked for pussy please, but couldn't spell it and all the others. And Kate, thank you. And I'll see you tomorrow. Over and out.